0: From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. In markets, convenience stores, fast food joints, and likely on your own table, genetically modified ingredients are everywhere.
1: There's chips, crackers, cookies, cereals, soft drinks, tofu, veggie burgers. The engineered soy or engineered corn... That's in 70 to 80% of virtually all processed products.
0: And new research finds GM soy contains disturbing levels of pesticide residues as well. Also, cutting smog and ozone pollution in Houston, it's getting better slowly.
1: Better does not mean good. Asthma patients will tell you, for example, that there is no question for them about when ozone levels are high because they feel it immediately when they go outside.
0: That, a bird note,
2: and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Funding for Living on Earth comes from Stonyfield Farm, makers of organic yogurt, smoothies, and more. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Boston and PRI,
0: this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. When transgenic food came on the market, the makers claimed it was substantially the same as natural food, so it didn't need to be regulated. But a recent Norwegian-led study in Iowa found that soy genetically modified to tolerate the herbicide glyphosate had considerable levels of the chemical's residues at harvest, compared to conventional soybeans, which had none. Some 85% of corn, 93% of soybeans, and 98% of sugar beets are genetically modified, and many European countries either ban such crops or require labeling. Well, with evidence mounting that GM foods are not the same as conventional ones, Vermont has become the first state to require labels on all food products that contain GM ingredients. Here to discuss the Vermont law and the new study of soy is Michael Hansen, Senior Staff Scientist at Consumers Union.
1: What the researchers basically found is they tested 30 sets of samples. There was 11 from organic, 10 from conventional fields, and then 10 from the Roundup Ready fields. And what they found is with the engineered soybeans, every single sample had uh, residues of both glyphosate and AMPA, which is its main breakdown product. And they averaged about four parts per million, and it was undetectable in either the organic or conventional.
0: Now, Monsanto, the company that makes Roundup once called the amount of glyphosate found in these soybeans extreme levels. Why did they make that statement, and what would they say now?
1: Well, they made that statement back in 1999, and just so you know, there was what they found in this study was, well, glyphosate was about 3.3 parts per million and its breakdown product was 5.7. So total, there was about 9 parts per million. And back in 99, they said they would consider 3 or 4 parts per million to be excessively high levels. Since then, however, what's happened is uh, they've managed to get the levels increased. So in the United States, for example, the tolerance for soybeans is actually 20 parts per million.
0: How dangerous are those amounts?
1: We don't really know, although there is increasing evidence that glyphosate is not the benign chemical that people thought it was. For example, last year there was a study published that looked just at breast cancer cells that are sensitive to hormones, and they actually found incredibly low levels of glyphosate. We're talking the parts-per-billion range and also down to the parts-per-trillion range there was an effect. That's one thing. Second, there's increasing evidence that glyphosate might cause birth defects, and it's also been linked in epidemiology to non-Hodgkin's lymphoma.
0: Michael Hansen, where is this GMO found in the market with these pesticide residues?
1: The engineered soy or engineered corn, that's in 70 to 80% of virtually all processed products. Anything that has either soybeans in it or potentially high fructose corn syrup so in virtually any processed food, there's chips, crackers, cookies, cereals, soft drinks, and if it's soy, tofu, veggie burgers, I mean, almost, uh, almost anything that you can think of because corn and soy are in a lot of things.
0: So how do federal regulators uh, regard uh, the issue of glyphosates and GMOs more broadly?
1: Since the U.S. doesn't recognize a difference between conventional breeding and genetic engineering, what they say is if we just look at the plants and they're, quote, substantially equivalent, then there's no reason to do a safety study or even label them because they're the same. Presently, the EPA and regulators consider glyphosate fairly benign, so they say the data you know justifies it's a safe level to have it up to 20 parts per million in soybeans, for example. Aside from the pesticide residues,
0: what differences, if any, did the study find between uh, GMO, that is engineered uh, soybeans, and uh, those that are grown conventionally or, or organically?
1: Well, what they did find is the organic soybeans had the healthiest nutritional profile. There was actually more sugars and significantly more total protein, zinc, and less fiber in the organic soybeans compared to either the conventional or the GM soy.
0: So does that mean that they are not really substantially the same?
1: That's correct. Well, the organic were significantly different in nutritional qualities compared to either the conventional or the engineered. But that could be because it's a different variety, because often when you're growing something organic, it's for a special market. So that market might actually have wanted uh, higher quality, more nutritious soybeans, whereas the conventional soy, most of that's fed to animals. So it would depend... Um, the organic market is probably going more for soy that might be used in human consumption.
0: Michael Hansen, I want to turn now to news from Vermont, which recently became the first state in the country to require all food products containing GMO ingredients to be labeled as such. What do you see for the future of GMO foods in the U.S., given the new Vermont law?
1: Well, I think what's important here is this Vermont law is going to go into effect in July of 2016. So in two years' time, what this will do is this will spur other states to potentially pass labeling laws, and then I think ultimately that will spur uh, action at the federal level.
0: So as I understand it, there are several other states that have similar bills to uh, Vermont's new law working their way through the legislature. Can you tell me about a couple of those, please?
1: Yes. The other states that have action is California. There's a mandatory labeling bill that's moving through the Senate, and it's going to be heard in the Appropriations Committee probably on May 12th. Uh, In New York, there's a bill that would require labeling, and it should also be pointed out in Oregon. uh, It looks like there's going to be a ballot initiative in the fall, another one like happened in California and Washington.
0: With Vermont now passing a GMO labeling law, to what extent will manufacturers just, uh, well, you know, have one package?
1: I think that's ultimately where this is going to go, because I think that very soon there will be a move toward having labeling at the national levels. And I think Vermont is going to help spur that.
0: Michael Hansen is a senior staff scientist at Consumers Union. Thanks so much for taking the time today.
1: You're welcome. Glad to do this.
0: In Lynchburg, Virginia, on April 30th, a train carrying crude oil derailed, and some cars exploded into a ball of fire and then fell into the James River. There were no injuries, but this was not an isolated incident. A number of explosive train derailments, including the tragedy in Lac-Megantic, Quebec, which killed 44 people, have raised the alarm about the safety of shipping oil by rail. The oil now gushing from the Bakken Shale in North Dakota and the Alberta tar sands has overwhelmed pipeline capacity, and millions of gallons now ride the rails, often in older tanker cars vulnerable to rupture. In response to increased alarm and public pressure, Canada has just released a new set of regulations for oil trains. Joining us now to discuss this news is Kim McCrail, reporter for The Globe and Mail based in Ottawa.
3: The rules that were announced last week by the transport minister, which is uh, Lisa Rait, they cover three basic areas, and they apply to the structure of the cars that are carrying, used commonly to carry the oil by rail, the emergency plans that uh, come into play if an accident occurs, and the risk analysis the railways are supposed to use to look at how risky it is to carry a particular dangerous good by rail.
0: So talk to me about the rules regarding rail car structure.
3: The cars that are normally used to carry crude oil are called dot one elevens and uh, these cars have been around for a long time. Many of the ones that are on the tracks right now date back to the, the 1970s, and they sort of look like large cylinders, um, usually black, and they're, once I saw them in lac they're identifiable everywhere. You can see them on the tracks. The problem with them that's been raised is that before October of 2011, the way they were built was identified as, uh, as not very strong. It doesn't have a proper uh, lining around, uh, around the outside of the tank. There are concerns that it can explode easily or corrode from the oil that's being put inside it. Since 2011, the industry has been making it to a higher standard, but that's only a fraction of the cars that are, are used today. So the new rules that were announced are that within three years, companies can no longer carry crude oil using the older model, the pre-2011 cars, when they're carrying it through Canada.
0: Now, what about uh, rules regarding emergency plans in case of accidents?
3: Yeah, so those uh, it's another area that um, was a pretty serious gap to not have been considered earlier. And the reason for it is that up until the accident in lac Megantic. Oil really wasn't considered to be explosive or dangerous to that level. So these emergency plans exist for a lot of other dangerous goods, but never for oil. And this rule, for the first time, means that companies who uh, import oil have to actually come up with these plans and make sure that municipalities are prepared.
0: What would come out of rulemaking regarding uh, risk analysis?
3: Yeah, on that one, um, in a way it follows uh, some of the um, discussions that have been happening in the United States. So recently um, there was an agreement that's voluntary between railways and the Department of Transportation in the U.S. saying that railways would be doing a better risk analysis of uh, of routes carrying dangerous goods. But they would also, uh, in the United States, they'll also have to look at whether there are safer routes to be carrying crude oil on. In Canada, they didn't quite go that far, and part of that is a recognition that there aren't a lot of route alternatives here. So here the question is more about looking at the possible risks, uh, going through big communities, passing water supplies, that sort of thing, and right now the the discussion is around slowing down trains when you're going through higher-risk areas.
0: Now, How is the oil industry responding, reacting to these uh, regulations?
3: The response has been... Overall, relatively positive. I think that there's some recognition that this was a pretty massive uh, disaster, and uh, recognition that changes is, is coming. Um, at the same time, there are um, the one that they've expressed some more concern about is uh, the changes for the DOT 111s, and that's largely because of the tight timeline that was given. So, three years may sound like a lot of time to still have cars that have been flagged as not very safe on the roads. But for industry, their response has been, well, that doesn't give us much time to build or retrofit the older cars to make sure they're able to use those. So if the changes are just Canadian changes, if the United States doesn't require the same thing, then they may be able to just shift around the cars that they're using. If the same rules are required in the United States, then you could have it become more difficult for them to, uh, to supply the industry with enough of the newer cars to keep oil moving at the pace it's been moving.
0: So, in other words, the more dangerous cars would be sent to the U.S. if there's no rule here?
3: I think that's a logical conclusion you uh, you have to come to at this point. We don't know yet, but it does look as if some rules are underway in the United States, so there may be a change. But if nothing is in place uh, before those three years, then it's reasonable to think that leasing companies would be more likely to be sending the older cars through to the United States and, uh, and the newer cars to Canada.
0: Kim. To what extent do you think these regulations uh, could limit the amount of oil uh, getting to market?
3: Yeah, it's a good question. I think um, it will be be a little bit hard to see until we see a rule come out of the United States on uh, 111s. If the, the change in terms of being allowed to use only the newer cars, if that's only a Canadian rule, I'm not sure we would see a, a huge change. There are enough of the newer cars that you can sort of manage that. If the United States goes ahead with um, requiring the newer cars, then, yeah, there's a a real chance that, depending on the timelines, it will be very difficult for railways to keep up with demand to be moving moving the amount of crude oil across the country and across the, the continent that they are right now.
0: But what do you think about the future of shipping oil by rail?
3: Well, you know, this has raised a, with the accident in Lake take, and then in very quick succession, the, the other accidents in North Dakota and Alabama really raised a lot of questions about the, the safety of it. And Canada in particular is a country that uh, a lot of our cities were built because of the railroads. And Lake take itself is actually the mayor has acknowledged that wouldn't exist without the railroad having been there in the first place. And so at this point, as we become a little bit more aware of the, goods that are, the dangers of the goods that are going through. I think a lot of communities and a lot of people are really thinking about what that reality means if a serious accident happens. You do have railways hauling a massive, massive amount of oil that is, uh, in particular in the case of the Bakken, very volatile, very prone to exploding. I hope we don't see any more of these, but uh, we certainly haven't eliminated all of the risk on this.
0: Kim McRae is a reporter for the Globe and Mail based in Ottawa, Canada. Thanks so much, Kim.
3: Oh, thank you very much.
0: Fresher air for some American cities. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Every year, the American Lung Association puts out a state-of-the-air report. And since the Clean Air Act became law, the nation's air has gotten cleaner. Increasingly, regulations on vehicles and power plants have helped cement the gains, but there's still plenty of room for improvement. Janice Nolan is the Assistant Vice President of National Policy and Advocacy for the Lung Association and one of the authors of the report. She says there's definitely some good news, but with the planet getting hotter, we won't all be able to breathe easy.
4: We're actually doing better in particle pollution, year-round particle pollution levels, but we had much more ozone spread around the nation. A hot summer in 2012 meant that our ozone levels went up for much of the nation. And as a result, we have more people who are breathing unhealthy air than in our previous
0: report. How does climate change make ozone worse if it does?
4: It does. As we get warmer temperatures, the raw ingredients that create ozone cook better. The raw ingredients, the gases of all organic compounds, nitrogen oxide and carbon monoxide, come from those smokestacks and tailpipes, and they cook in sunlight. And heat makes that cook better. So when we're trying to deal with ozone, by having to have that heat, it makes a much more receptive area for the ozone to form. And with carbon pollution, carbon pollution adds, Adds to that temperature, it adds to that heat and so as we can reduce the carbon pollution we're going to have a better shot at being able to reduce the ozone overall.
0: What are the health impacts of ozone?
4: Ozone is a highly irritating gas. It irritates the lungs as if you had a sunburn or if somebody was rubbing sandpaper over a wound. And what that ultimately does is cause things like asthma attacks, coughing and wheezing. It can send people to the hospital and the emergency room. It can even shorten life. And now we're learning that it may have things that have more unusual impacts that we hadn't appreciated, like uh, increasing the risk of having a low birth weight in a newborn baby. So the more we're learning about these pollutants, especially, especially about ozone, the more harm we're finding as a result of that. Or particle pollution is even more serious. Particle pollution that we've been reducing is extremely lethal. It can cause heart attacks and stroke. Uh, It can also increase the risk of lung cancer.
0: Geographically, where is ozone pollution particularly bad?
4: Uh, In most all of the country, we have a lot of areas in the big cities, urban areas, and in places where we're seeing a lot of extraction in oil and gas, where we're seeing a lot of the raw ingredients for ozone uh, being created. So we're seeing some places that hadn't had ozone problems before having them. Lots of the country where it's warmer, sunnier, where the raw ingredients can cook well and create it. So a big part of the middle part of the country.
0: What cities are the worst?
4: The worst for ozone are a lot of the California cities. Los Angeles has been number one on our list of most polluted cities for a long, long time. And we also have cities like Bakersfield, Fresno, Sacramento. But after after you get out of the California area, Houston, Dallas, Washington, D.C., Las Vegas, all of those are among our 10 most polluted cities for ozone.
0: In terms of ozone, what particular populations of people are at risk? And is that income-related at all?
4: In some ways, actually, both ozone and particle pollution affect some of the same people, Uh, people who are children or teenagers because your lungs keep growing until you're 18 years of age, people who are over 65, people who have chronic lung disease, chronic heart disease, people with diabetes, people who are healthy adults who exercise or work outdoors, and also low-income people. Those people, for many reasons, are folks who have some of the highest impacts and are most vulnerable from pollution of all sources.
0: From a policy perspective, what needs to be done then to address the ozone problem?
4: We need to have a tighter ozone standard. EPA is looking at the science right now, uh, and they are required to do this every five years in order to review and make sure that the goal that we're setting, the official standard for ozone, is right. And what we know is that it's not, that there's more pollution in the air and that levels that are much lower in ozone actually are harmful. And so we need to strengthen that standard, and that's going on right now. And that will help us better prepare for the future because it will help us aim at the right goal for cleaning up pollution.
0: Now, the Supreme Court recently made a big decision when it comes to air quality on something called the cross-state rule. Tell us about it, why you think it's important.
4: We were really pleased with the Supreme Court decision about the cross-state rule because it's based in a part of the Clean Air Act that's called the Good Neighbor Rule, and that means that polluters that are in another state are not allowed to produce pollution that blows into a downwind state and causes unhealthy air. EPA has been trying to deal with that because the states haven't regulated themselves adequately, and so EPA provided some rules on how to reduce that, and that was challenged all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court Court said, absolutely, this is a provision that needs to be upheld. EPA has done a good job at trying to figure that out, and we need to make sure that pollution that's blowing across the state line, for example, in the Maryland, where they found that so much pollution is blowing into Maryland from out of state that they really can't meet their goal for cleaning up the air without having some help from the federal government, and the Supreme Court allowed that to happen.
0: What kind of legal precedent does this set for the rest of President Obama's efforts to regulate carbon pollution under the Clean Air Act?
4: we're hoping is that it shows that EPA can do these kinds of detailed analyses and establish rules that recognize that air flows everywhere, and carbon pollution is just like that, and that you have to control these big sources, and often those big sources are away from some of the places where the pollution is having the biggest impact. So we're optimistic that this shows that looking at the Clean Air Act, which is, by the way, over 40 years old, established these kinds of processes that, once they're allowed to work, can really help make a difference. And so we're optimistic that the carbon pollution standard will be able to help EPA take the tools that they need to address this big source of climate change.
0: Janice Nolan is the Assistant Vice President of National Policy and Advocacy for the American Lung Association. Thanks so much for taking this time with us. Thank you so much. Take care. One of the cities that's often on the Lung Association's blacklist is Houston, Texas. And it's there again this year, because of its elevated amounts of ground-level ozone. Houston is home to the largest chemical hub in the Americas, and it's one of the smoggiest cities in the U.S., even though it's been working hard to clean up its air, and things have gotten better. Reed Frazier of the public radio program The Allegheny Front reports, Houston has had success mainly by focusing on its chemical plants.
5: Rail cars filled with chemicals rumble through Houston's east side. The city's industrial plants pump out about a quarter of the country's petrochemicals, and the plants have helped fuel the city's economy. They've also added to its poor record of air quality. For years, Houston's had some of the highest levels of smog in the country. But its air is getting cleaner. In a trailer parked on an industrial road near the outskirts of Houston, Steve Smith points to a rack of monitors.
6: These are the particulate mass monitors.
5: Smith is with the Houston Regional Monitoring Network. It's an industry-funded group that monitors the air to help companies comply with federal air quality rules. He points to another machine. It's a metal box with a digital readout on the front.
6: This is the ozone analyzer, and it's currently reading 29.6 parts per billion. Okay, the, And that's the instantaneous good. number. That's good.
5: Smog is created when sunlight interacts with a mix of pollutants. One key ingredient in smog are a group of chemicals called volatile organic compounds, or VOCs. Smog can burn the lungs and eyes and exacerbate asthma and respiratory illness. With its steamy weather, millions of cars on the road, and hundreds of industrial plants releasing those VOCs, Houston is an ideal place to make ozone, But over the past decade, the city has made big strides in curbing its ozone, a 20% drop according to state figures. The decline is tied to many factors, including new regulations. But, Smith says, the biggest factor of all is pretty simple. People are paying more attention to it. There are more than three dozen stations like this scattered around the city measuring pollution. And he says that's making a difference.
6: If you monitor, it will get better.
5: It wasn't always like this. In 1999, Houston overtook Los Angeles as the city with the highest ozone levels in America.
4: Yes, we were the ozone capital for a while.
5: Elizabeth Hendler is a former state air quality planner who now works as an environmental consultant. The city's air quality became a story, and that was bad for business, she says.
4: For the local government and the civic community, for the state, that was just kind of
5: a wake-up call. Under federal pressure, Texas launched several air studies in Houston. Scientists from around the country came to study the air here. Harvey Jeffries was one of them. He's a retired chemistry professor at the University of North Carolina.
4: There were huge increases in ozone that
5: lasted an hour and vanished. Where were these increases coming from? Scientists flew over the city with infrared cameras that could pick up stray gases. They found big leaks. The worst were from chemical plants that made ethylene and propylene, the building blocks of plastic.
4: They were having 1,000-pound releases, 5,000-pound releases, 20,000-pound releases, in one case 200,000-pound releases of the most reactive compounds you can imagine.
5: Jeffrey says ethylene and propylene posed a problem in Houston because they're highly reactive VOCs. That means they can make ozone very quickly.
4: And when that stuff gets emitted in the daytime, uh, it cooks up the highest amount of ozone you've ever seen.
5: Scientists also realized that chemical plants were chronically underreporting their emissions. A lot of this pollution was leaks from valves and flanges or tiny holes in pipelines. Armed with new data, the state took action. It curbed emissions from sources like cars and the construction industry, but it also zeroed in on petrochemicals. Texas implemented a special cap and trade system just for chemical plants. So, what happened? Elizabeth Hendler.
3: Well, ozone came down. <laughs>
5: a lot. Everyone agrees this is good news for the air in Houston, but environmental groups say the air is still too dirty. Adrian Shelley is director of the environmental group Air Alliance Houston.
1: Better does not mean good.
5: Shelley points out that ozone levels in Houston still reach unsafe levels 30 days a year. And since the EPA started regulating it in the 1980s, the city has never met a single health-based standard for ozone. And on days when ozone is high...
1: Asthma patients will tell you, for example, that um, there is no question for them about when ozone levels are high because they feel it immediately when they go outside.
5: Shelley says air quality may actually get worse with many of the city's chemical plants planning expansions. At least, that's what he's afraid of these plants are adding capacity to take advantage of gas from the fracking boom. Fracking has made ethane, a key component of natural gas, historically cheap. So chemical companies are building like crazy along the Gulf Coast to take advantage of this low-cost raw material. In Houston, Shelley's group is fighting to have regulators impose stricter pollution controls on new facilities so that these new plants don't actually make Houston's air any worse. Adding difficulty to the issue is the fact that Houston has no zoning laws. That means some residents live across the street from huge refineries and chemical plants. And the other one, her name is Like Apollonia Martinez. She lives in Manchester, a low-income neighborhood between a rubber plant and a refinery. Standing on her porch, she says one of her sons has been having a lot of asthma attacks lately.
7: Every now and then I have to give them treatments because of his breathing problems at night.
5: Martinez says she'd like to leave Manchester, but she can't afford rents in more expensive neighborhoods. Business leaders admit that living next to a plant may not be ideal. But they point out that except for ozone, the air in these neighborhoods generally meets federal health guidelines. Craig Beskid is executive director of the East Harris County Manufacturers Association. That's a local industry group. He says Houston's chemical and refining sector contributes about 30,000 jobs to the local economy. And these are good-paying jobs, with salaries ranging from $40,000 to $200,000 a year. A great benefit in anyone's life is to have a good job. And uh, when you live in a vibrant and growing economic area,
7: uh, good jobs are plentiful
5: and the plants provide these jobs while also releasing fewer and fewer emissions every year, he says. In fact, Houston might not even have the highest ozone levels in Texas anymore. That distinction might belong to Dallas-Fort Worth. A big new source for emissions there, fracking for natural gas.
0: Reed Fraser reports for the public radio program, The Allegheny Front. If you want to see birds in your yard, there's no better way than to feed them and encourage them to hang around by giving them somewhere appealing to live. Sometimes, though, all one seems to attract are the ubiquitous starlings and sparrows. So, in today's Bird Note, Michael Stein has some words of advice.
8: We're hearing a house wren, a black-capped chickadee, and red-breasted nuthatch. One of these birds might make its home in your yard if you put up the right kind of birdhouse. They're all cavity nesters, birds that need a cavity in a tree or a birdhouse that serves the same purpose, for nesting. Look for a nest box that's plain wood, none of that fancy stuff. Birds prefer their nest sites to be inconspicuous. If the birdhouse comes with a cute little dowel perch, remove it. The nesting birds don't need the perch, and it just makes it easier for a predator bird to land and go after the eggs or the young. Here's the important part. Grab a ruler and measure the entrance hole. It should be one and one-eighth inches. No more, no less. Exactly one and one-eighth inches. If the entrance hole is too big, use an adapter to reduce the size. That size will let native birds in and keep non natives out. Now, hang the box where it's out of reach of any predator. I'm Michael Stein.
0: Hop on over to our website, loe.org, for some cute pictures of these native birds.
2: up the power of one in the face of environmental destruction. That's just ahead here on Living on Earth. Stay tuned. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems, the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for the coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Time to tunnel beyond the headlines
0: now with our guide to that realm, Peter Dykstra. He publishes Environmental Health News, that's ehn.org, and dailyclimate.org. And he joins us on the line now from Conyers, Georgia. Hi there, Peter.
6: Hi, Steve. Uh, We're going to start you off with a little unusual problem. The agency in charge of enforcing air pollution laws in the state of Missouri has, uh, has a pretty big problem right now.
0: And what's that? Or maybe I should say, show me.
6: Well, here it is. Apparently, they've done a terrific job. The Air Pollution Control Program at Missouri's Department of Natural Resources funds itself by collecting fees from air polluters. Uh, They don't get much. It's about $40 per ton of pollutants. But industry has been cutting down on pollution in recent years. That's an airflow benefit for lungs in Missouri, but it's a cash flow problem for the state's bean counters. And the Air Pollution Control Program says they'll go broke by 2016 if they can't find a fix.
0: Well, what about a fix to raise the fees beyond the 40 bucks per ton of pollution?
6: Exactly. And that's what they're thinking about. But that requires help from the governor and from the legislature. And the earliest that can take effect, if they agree, is 2016. That's right about when the money runs out. But wait, there's more. This bureaucratic clean air nightmare gets even worse. Tighter federal EPA clean air limits are going to kick in over the next few years. Missouri's air will be even cleaner. And that means its air pollution budget will be even leaner.
0: So, as they say, no good deed goes unpunished, huh?
6: Uh, I guess, but at least air pollution there is on the way down, which is not the case in China, but there are some changes in the air there, too.
0: Along with a lot of other things, but what's new in China?
6: Well, for the first time in 25 years, the Standing Committee of the People's National Congress has revised and upgraded China's main environmental laws. They're promising stiffer fines against polluting industries, and the new laws will make it easier for citizens and non-government groups to sue to enforce the pollution laws.
0: Wait a second here, Peter, you're saying... Even with everything we've heard about the massive pollution problems in China, this is the first sweeping government action in, what, a quarter century?
6: Yeah, can you imagine that? It's one of the world's biggest and most powerful nations, and its legislature can't seem to get anything done on the environment. Have you ever heard of such a thing?
0: Um, no, I, I most certainly have, but China is a case unto itself for pollution.
6: It is. We picked up a story from Stuart Leavenworth, who covers China for the McClatchy newspaper chain, and his reporting says that one of the government's motivators in stiffening these pollution laws is all of the public discontent that's on the rise there, the widespread environmental protests that have been going on in China. But the state-run media is already managing expectations, saying that stronger laws alone won't undo what they call decades of reckless pollution.
0: Well, there's over a billion people in China, and they're motivated to make these changes. It's going to be a big deal.
6: Well, yeah, but uh, I don't know. Don't hold your breath, which maybe is itself healthy in China.
0: Peter, what do you have for us on the history calendar this week? Well, Steve,
6: 10 years ago this week, a forward-thinking governor from Living on Earth's home state enacted a sweeping plan to combat climate change. It was called the Massachusetts Climate Protection Plan. Governor Mitt Romney was at the head of it. He had outlined steps for the state to deal with climate impacts on severe storms, the coastline, freshwater, wildlife, human health and more.
0: But uh, wait, by the time he ran for president in 2012, uh, Governor Romney wasn't so sure about climate change.
6: Yeah, by then he didn't care much for universal health care either, even though that's something else he set up when he was governor. Several times on the presidential campaign trail in 2012, he said he wasn't sure about man-made climate change anymore, and he thought that spending money on some kind of climate protection plan was a really bad idea.
0: Peter Dykstra is publisher of Environmental Health News. That's ehn.org and thedailyclimate.org. Thanks so much, Peter, for taking the time today. All right. Thanks a lot, Steve. We'll talk to you soon. And there's more on these stories on our website, LOE.org. The Goldman Prizes are unofficially called the Environmental Nobels. They single out an activist from each of the world's inhabited continents with an award this year of $175,000. The 2014 recipients include... Ramesh Agarwal from India, who fought against the construction of new coal mines, and Surin Gazarian, who worked to expose the Russian government's illegal seizure of protected forest land for the construction of luxury homes. In Indonesia, Rudy Putra worked to protect endangered wildlife habitat from palm oil company deforestation. And Ruth Buendia fought against large-scale hydroelectric dams that would have displaced indigenous communities in Peru. We spoke with the two other 2014 Goldman Prize winners, Desmond Dessa from South Africa and Helen Slotje from the United States. A former corporate lawyer, Ms. Slotje devised a strategy for local communities to block fracking in New York State and explained how it came about.
9: My husband David's brother was looking for a small farm to move up to our area as a second home. And everywhere we went, there were gas leases. And the realtors told us, oh, it's no big deal. It's just a a small oil and gas lease, nothing to worry about. And David was formerly a Texas lawyer and he said, you know, I'm from Texas and there ain't no such thing as a no big deal oil and gas lease. And it took two years for us to sort of circle back to really getting involved. But that was the first sort of consciousness raising. And then I, in 2009, I went to a gas drilling meeting and they were, had pictures, and pictures of what had been happening in Pennsylvania. They were horrifying. There were these huge areas of land that had just been scraped bare, pits full of unknown fracking chemicals. And everyone said, well, there's you know, there's nothing we can do. This is coming. We should try to brace for impact, but we're powerless.
0: But they didn't know that you would have a better idea. And what was that better idea?
9: David and I are both lawyers, so this just seemed wrong to us. And it seemed like there had to be something that you could do. So we set about determining, you know, is the federal government going to protect us? No. Is the state government going to protect us? No. What can we do at the local level? And everyone said nothing. But we looked and found that while we couldn't regulate the industry, they could use zoning laws to say, There's no place in our community where this is appropriate. This is an incompatible land use, and you're not allowed to do this at all in our town.
0: In other words, just say no.
9: Right. Just say no. No fracking way.
0: So in the end, you started something of a small movement, but it spread across upstate New York. How did that work, and how did you feel?
9: It was amazing. We were developing this idea that a town could use zoning to prohibit these high-impact industrial uses, and we mentioned it at a meeting. And the people that heard us talk about this in one town went out and started a petition drive on their own to have their town be the first town to enact one of these laws. So... We began, you know, drafting a law for the task force in that town. And from there, it it took a lot of convincing for the first few towns. But after we had about seven or eight towns that had passed these sort of laws, there was this paradigm shift where communities began to say, why don't we have these laws? And so it went from seven or eight towns to now close to 200 towns have taken some sort of action, passing a local law of uh, one variety or another. So what's the legal
0: status of fracking in New York State right now? Now, the governor is supposed to make a decision on fracking statewide. Uh, if he were to approve that, how would that affect the communities who have uh, banned uh, fracking?
9: Well, those bans would still stand. The Department of Environmental Conservation in New York is conducting an environmental review, and commissioner of the DEC ultimately reports to the governors, hence people talk about it as Governor Cuomo's decision, although it's really supposed to be the Department of Environmental Conservation. And if they were to find that fracking could be done safely, then that would leave open still this issue of local control. And Governor Cuomo himself has said that the idea, the concept of local control makes sense to him. The industry has challenged these local bans, particularly in two lawsuits that are now waiting to be heard by the New York Court of Appeals. You never know for certain, but our expectation is that the Court of Appeals will uphold the trial court and the appellate court's unanimous decision saying that, yes, towns can use zoning to prohibit gas drilling.
0: Helen, I want to turn now um, to another winner of the Goldman Prize this year, who's sitting next to you there in the studio, Desmond Desa. Um Desmond Dessau, please tell me about South Durban and South Africa, where you're from.
7: South Durban is the home of of 70% of Durban's uh, industries and factories. It's got over 300 smokestacks, and it's got, including in the smokestacks, um, of the biggest chemical storage facility in the Southern Hemisphere, two of the biggest petrochemical crude oil refineries and paper mills, and just and amongst all of that are people, and predominantly poor black folks. Now, how did your family come to live in this part of Durban? Well, during the 1969 Separation Act during the apartheid era, that act separated people of color and placed poor black communities and forced them out of the area where we came from, where we lived, where there was clean running water, fresh air, clean soil, where we planted our own vegetables in the garden, and forced and relocated to live alongside dirty industries in a four-room house, which we call the State Projects in South Africa.
0: Now, I understand that South Durban is also notoriously known as Cancer Valley. Tell me about some of the health problems people experience there.
7: Over half the population have um, respiratory disease such as asthma, which is chronic asthma. Children in South Durban, the risk to cancer was 25 in 100,000 people, and the national norm was 1 in 100,000. We have a very high leukemia rate just on the door-to-door study done by and confirmed by the Nelson Mandela Medical School in Durban was that the children in South Durban, their leukemia rate was 24 times the norm. And that's besides all the skin rashes and other respiratory illnesses that children are affected with. What alerted me to all this was the constant um, uh, government ambulances coming to my neighborhood at all hours of the day and night, bringing with them oxygen cylinders and um, nebulizers so that children could breed freely. So people were
0: forced into this neighborhood back in apartheid, but as I understand it, the straw that broke the camel's back for you came well after apartheid ended in 2009. Tell me about the toxic waste landfill that got you so concerned.
7: Well, the toxic waste landfill had been operating for a number of years in black neighborhoods, and toxic Uh, Landfill sites are never managed properly in South Africa, and in 2009, the waste company was wanting to expand the landfill site to three times its normal size. That would have made it the biggest landfill site in post-apartheid South Africa. Uh, We lobbied strongly, we engaged uh, with the waste company and government, and during that period... Uh, we were able to ensure that instead of expanding, to turn around the discussion to closure. In um, November the 15th, 2011, a few days before the Conference of the Parties, the United Nations Conference of the Parties COP17 in Durban, the landfill site eventually was closed.
0: Tell me about the things that were dumped in that uh, toxic waste uh, landfill there in South Durban. What were some of the chemicals that you found?
7: We found some heavy metals like cyanide and mercury. Um, we found other toxic chemicals, amelior acrylites. acrylites were dumped there. And basically all the sludge, all the heavy sludge from the recycling companies were dumped at the toxic landfill site, brought and dumped there.
0: How did you feel about that living there?
7: Well, I was outraged about it. I must tell you, my personal experience, I've had a brother die of cancer in the area. I've had a daughter who's had chronic asthma. And I've got a grandchild that's got chronic asthma. After seeing a seven-year-old child diagnosed with leukemia, I decided there and there that I was never going to give in. I was going to stand up. I was going to develop the data and gather all that information and make sure that toxic landfill sites were never going to be placed in black communities again.
0: Now, your two stories actually have quite a bit in common. I understand that each of you were subject to intimidation and harassment from the industries you were fighting against Helen, uh, what kind of intimidation uh, happened to you as you were taking on the fracking industry?
9: People would say that we weren 't competent lawyers that my husband had failed the bar several times, which was not true that what we were proposing would subject anyone who listened to us as town officials to personal liability, that industry would come and would sue the town and not just the town, but these town board members individually, and that the individual town board members would lose their homes if they were to take our advice. People would follow us, you know, around uh, after meetings, yelling at us, following us out to our cars, they would videotape everything we said everywhere we went as proof that they were going to submit all of this as some sort of evidence that we were incompetent or committing malpractice.
7: Desmond, tell me, what sorts of things happened to you? Well, there's been a host of stuff happening to me. One was that my home was firebombed in 2007 resulting in one of my daughters being affected, traumatized, and myself being burnt facial burns, and I had burns all over my arms. Uh, My wife was traumatized so much so that she left the area and didn't live with me for a number of years. So I've had to pay the price. But when I was in hospital the very morning that my house was firebombed, I discharged myself out of hospital because I knew there and then I had to go back and show my resolve and to show that no amount of threat or even attempts to kill me Will determine if I'm doing what is right. Desmond,
0: what's next for you? Landfill is closed, problem solved?
7: Not really. You know, back home in Durban, um, since uh, post apartheid, we have the biggest social upheaval that will ever take place with the expansion of the Durban harbour. Uh, there's a brand new dugout port that's going to link the present harbour. Durban is the biggest container port at the moment, and they want to expand it further, resulting in those who have suffered before as products of forced removal, being removed once again. It took us 40 years to rebuild our homes, to um, rebuild stable communities, to build our own schools, to build recreational areas. And all this is under threat once again. What we are calling for is a sustainable business model that takes into consideration, that improves community, that doesn't allow community areas to be decayed, that provides access and sanitation and energy to poor community living in humane conditions in South Durban.
0: Helen, what about you? What are you going to do if the state of New York now uh, approves fracking?
9: Well, part of our work will be to continue with the local bands in the state of New York. And we also want to use this opportunity with the Goldman Prize to spread the word that communities have the right to decide what happens in their communities. And that's one of the common threads between all of the prize recipients is this grassroots action, local action and trying to work to inspire people to stand up and to say, you know, I'm not going to take this anymore. This this racism, this inequality, this inability to control our own destinies and to truly be secure in our own homes. There are places across the country that are interested in learning more about what we did in New York and how it can be adapted to their state. And so we're looking to further our message as well.
0: I want to thank you both for taking this time.
9: All right. Thank you so much. Thank you so
0: much. Helen Slache won the North American Goldman Prize this year for her work opposing fracking in New York State, and the Africa Prize went to Desmond Dassa of South Africa. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Naomi Ehrenberg, Clarissa Baker, Bobby Baskin, Emmett Fitzgerald, Helen Palmer, Catalina Pierschmidt, Adelaide Chen, James Kerwood, and Jennifer Marquis all helped to make our show. Jeff Turton is our technical director. We had engineering help this week from Jake Rago, Noel Flat, and Dana Chisholm. Special thanks to the Fund for Investigative Journalism for our story from Houston. Alison Liererstein composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org and like us on our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth, and we tweet from at
2: Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwin. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Candida Fund furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. Living on Earth is also supported by a friend of the nation, where you can read such environmental writers as Wen Stevenson, Bill McKibben, Mark Hertzgard, and others at thenation.com. This is PRI, Public Radio International.
0: PRI, Public Radio International.